I'm continuing this series on blind spots this morning, um, which I'm loving, by the way. And today we are talking about sexism and genderism. Um, and I'm honored to be the one to be able to talk about this today. Um, I think right off the bat, it's important that we maybe clarify some terms around this particular topic so that we're all speaking a common language as we move forward this morning and do this work. So, real quick, sex is a term in reference to one's biological makeup, your parts, to be blunt about it. Um, Male and female are the distinctions that we use to talk about sex. So then, sexism is a reference to prejudice, stereotyping, or dehumanizing of someone strictly based on their biology, right? And this manifests itself in all sorts of ways in our culture, and it goes both ways, male and female, but obviously, predominantly, as we know, this manifests itself as prejudice against females. Now, gender, then, is a reference to this socio-psychological existence. And what I mean by that is we acquire through learned cultural experience, um, that's the socio part, right, what it means to be a man or to be a woman, right? That is sociologically conditioned. That is not an inherent thing to someone's biological makeup. Yet genderism then suggests that, nope, gender exists in a binary, which is false, P.S., Genderism says, nope, what it means to be a man is this, and what it means to be a woman is this. And those two things don't intersect. They don't cross over. That's genderism. But see, the two are intricately and inherently linked because genderism says that the basis of determining what it means to be a man and a woman is necessarily linked to one's biological makeup. Right? It's a doubly false thing. But that's the reason why you've heard us talk about this particular sermon today as sexism and then sometimes as genderism. It's not that those two things are synonymous. They're not. But they are intricately and necessarily linked in the way that they dehumanize certain people in our culture. They're intricately linked. Um, And so (laughs) being a female in this culture speaking from personal experience, is very interesting um, because not only am I looked at and one sees a female biological form, so A, typically females are, um, are objectified or they are oppressed based on not only their biological makeup from sexism, but also from that which culture deems feminine, which is supposed to be directly linked to my biological form. So I'm A, uh, dehumanized because of my biological makeup, and then on a second level, dehumanized because of what culture considers my biological level to carry as characteristics inherent to my biology, which is false. Okay, all right. So (laughs) um, I also want to stop here and say... I want to give a few disclaimers before I continue today. Um, I will likely mix up these terms today, okay? I'm not going to do this perfectly. I am not an expert on all of this. Um, So I want to apologize in advance, but I wanted to get all of that out, all the terminology, wanted to put that on the table so we know exactly what we are talking about when we have this conversation. Um, Also, today is not an attack message on males, okay? I want to be super duper clear on that. Okay, we are all beloved here. This series is simply meant to remind us of that. But to the males in the room, please stick with this today. 
Please stick with this today. Listen and know that the gentleness and beauty of the feminine exists in all of us. Okay, and these blind spots are damaging part of you too. Thirdly, um, I want to quickly say that if you didn't notice, I am a cisgendered, straight, white American female. Okay, so that means that I can only speak from that perspective realistically. Um, And often when we talk about feminism, that sounds like a really great idea, but I also want to acknowledge that womanism is a very vital part of this discussion that I just can't personally speak to today. Womanism is the movement of black female voices rising up and saying, hey, feminism is real great and everything, but we still weren't allowed to vote in 1920 when you got your vote. And we are still paid less than you on the dollar, okay? So womanism is such an important part of this conversation, and I just want to quickly acknowledge it and pay a note to it because it is so worthy of discussion, which is why next week when Mickey Scott Bay Jones is here, that's going to be so important to see a black female voice speaking to us about racism. Huge, 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 because black women are not only like me, right, doubly, uh, they face double prejudice via sexism and genderism, but also via racism, right? So they are, minority women are probably at the greatest disadvantage in this country. So I just want to be super duper clear about that and, and pay mind to that. Okay, now that we've run through terminology and I've given you my disclaimers, I want us to try a little exercise. Um, I'm going to give you a list of words. And I would like us all to think of, um, imagine a person associated with that word. And I don't, don't filter or edit your initial uh, instinct, okay? I just, I want, you to, I want you to hear this word, think of an image of a person, and move on, okay? Let's just try it. So everybody close your eyes for me. Here we go. Firefighter. Professor. CEO. President. Captain, doctor, theologian, inventor. All right, you can open your eyes. How many of you saw a male firefighter? Male professor? Yeah. Male CEO? Yeah. Male president? That's, That's a little easier to imagine something other. Male captain, yeah, male doctor, male theologian. Listen, to be very clear, I came up with that list because these are all professions and positions of power and authority that when I thought them to myself, I saw a man in those positions, okay? It's not unusual, and it's not unusual because it's our actual lived reality right now, still, to this day. And the reason that when we hear those words and when we think of positions of power and authority, the reason that we... Uh, that we are more likely to see a male um, or a man in those positions is, um, interestingly enough, uh, neurological. So let's talk about that. So um, for any of you, did any of you listen to the Liturgist and or Science Mike, that podcast? Okay, Mike McCarg was actually in town recently. Um, Mike has a brilliant mind. I personally think he's just a freaking genius, but that's my personal bias. Um, Anyway, he talks about, he's not a neuroscientist by any means, but he's got a great mind. And um, he, he's got such a good mind and a very scientific mind to the point that I think that 
I, I believe that what he says is probably mostly right most of the time. <laughs> um, but I also know this to be true. So we have neurological categories in our mind for certain things and certain information. Right, so, and these, these different categories or boxes, if you want to think of it that way, are conditioned by society, by culture, by nurture, right? Um, this is why we're told to avoid um, talking religion and politics at Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? Because when we have certain categories in our mind for things, and especially when we find ourselves in a context that continues to reinforce that which we believe that, that finds itself, that that information that finds itself in certain categories, when we are consistently reinforcing those ideas with our culture, those boxes, those categories get sealed tighter and tighter to the point where when you receive information that is dissonant, right, to the information in that category, guess what happens? That information just bounces right on off. You literally cannot receive information other than what you have neurological categories for, and it often results, right, in arguments at the dinner table, right, in fights with your relatives, all these things. That's actually what is happening. And the problem is to undo that is difficult. It's real frustrating to create new neurological categories in your brain for information that you are not used to. It's hard. It really, really is, and I get it. And this is how blind spots are created. We refuse to open those boxes. We refuse to create new spaces in our minds for new information and new ways of being. That's actually how this happens. So if our boxes are built based on what we've been conditioned to see and know and believe, what that tells us then about this little exercise that we just did is that we don't actually have properly constructed boxes or categories for women in leadership. We don't have them yet. It's still surprising or impressive when a woman is in some position of power. It's surprising and impressive because it's not the norm yet. Seven percent of the world's leaders are women. Seven. That's it. 50% of the population only makes up 7% of world leadership. We are not there yet. Um, I didn't know, for example, that I could be in leadership in a church. A, because I was straight up told I couldn't be. <laughs> and my, my particular denomination used the Bible to support that, which was really convenient considering it's a collection of, of, uh, of books and writings that were written in a patriarchal misogynistic society. But whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Right? So that's, that's really easy. It's very easy to make a case that women should not be in leadership using the Bible. You're not going to hear a lot of Bible verses from me today. So apologies in advance for that. I just have a lot to say about this that I, I think I can speak to for my own, uh, for my own self. Um, I was also told, truthfully, I never saw someone that looked like me behind a pulpit. I was not represented in that space. Even if I were to be told, no, that's fine. You have the authority to do that. I never saw somebody that looked like me up there. So then how am I supposed to be expected through the images that I'm given that I actually have a place in this world when I never see it? A female pastor, so Melissa, Kim, myself, and Stan were just at a conference in Indianapolis this week called Open Faith, and they had a women in leadership panel. Um, and this, this one woman, these are all women who have some, uh, some role in, currently in clergy or in ministry of some type. This particular woman told her story um, about being hired on at this particular church. She was the first female um, clergy member at this church, so that was a big deal for them and for her. Uh, she was replacing a man who started out $30,000 less than what he ended up at, right? So he 
climb the ladder, essentially, which is great. She walks into this interview. This is a woman who has a Master's of Divinity from Yale University and a Doctorate of Ministry from Princeton University. She walks in and they say, gosh, you're going to be a bargain. This is a very real life story, okay? They say, you're going to be a bargain. She says, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you mean by that. They say, oh, well, we can pay you the starting salary of the guy that came before you. We can pay you $30,000 less than the man who was in this position before you, even though you have just as much experience and are actually more educated than the man who came before you. You're a bargain. And what she found out later, after years, uh, years in that place, and then she moved on, what she found out was that the man who replaced her came right on in at that $30,000 upcharge. He wasn't a bargain. He didn't have to be a bargain, right? 77 cents on the dollar does not cut it, folks. These are systemic problems. And the thing is that the realities of sexism and genderism are not just seen in the workplace, right? They don't just manifest in these kinds of structures. They are literally everywhere, everywhere. It's why it's a blind spot, right? Um, I recently posted a video, <clears throat> excuse me, on Facebook of this little girl and her mother um, in a retail store, and they're in the kids' clothing section where there are girls' t-shirts, like graphic tees, and boys' t-shirts, okay? And they're going through and they're looking at <clears throat> um, what these t-shirts say. The girls' t-shirts read things like, hey, I'm fabulous. I feel beautiful, all these kinds of things, which are all great and lovely. Like, I want to feel fabulous and beautiful all the time, too. I get it. But as they scan over to the boys' section of clothing, the shirt started to read things like adventure awaits. Think outside the box, which is really ironic. <laughs> right? Right? There is a boys' shirt that says think outside the box. That shirt is not found in the girls' section. It's found in the boys' section in this box that says boy on it. Right? What? <laughs> and hero. There was a boy's shirt that said hero, y'all. The hero shirt was designated for boys. Hero. No wonder we imagine men when we think of doctors and firefighters, right? These social heroes that we have, these cultural heroes. Because you know who the heroes are for me? Damsels in distress. That's who. Right? Women who've been taken captive and aren't strong enough to, to create their own freedom, but instead need someone who, oddly enough, is usually a man to come in and rescue her from her oppression. Those are my heroes. That is not good enough. It's not good enough. If we don't see ourselves reflected properly, for the fullness of who we are, we are making a mistake. We're doing something wrong. We are missing it. Sexism and genderism rear their ugly heads in the most traumatic of ways in cases of domestic abuse or rape. Sorry. <laughs> um, no, I'm not sorry. Um, I'll, I'm going to take a minute to say to anyone in the room, um, if this particular topic is a trigger for you, if this is something that you've personally experienced and you need to take care of yourself by removing yourself from this space, I think that you have not only the right to do that, but the responsibility to do that to your own belovedness. So if you need to step out because this is too damn hard, you can. 
One, uh, we have some statistics. Yeah, thank you. One out of every six women has been the victim of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. And this is just a statistic for rape. This isn't even sexual abuse or sexual assault uh, in total. Um, within that, you can stay on that for a second. Um, within that statistic, 82% of juvenile victims of rape are female. 90% of adult rape victims are female. 90%. Females ages 16 to 19 are four times more likely than the general population to be victims of rape, uh, attempted rape, or completed rape or sexual assault. Female college students are three times more likely than the general population to be victims of the same. And that equal, I have another slide, um, that comes out to approximately 20,899,400 women who have experienced attempted or completed rape. And again, that's just a rape statistic. That doesn't even cover everything. Here's <laughs> the thing about this is, I was not raised oblivious to this kind of reality. The girls in this room, the women in this room, were not raised unaware that this is a very real statistic right? We are taught to carry our car keys between our fingers while walking alone in a parking garage so that if we are accosted or assaulted, we can swing with claws. How many of you were taught that trick? Look around. How many of you have been afraid to walk by yourself down a street because you know that it is not unlikely that you could be one of these statistics? How many have been afraid to walk by themselves? Look around. This is the reality of sexism and genderism. This is how they manifest. And every little thing we do in this culture to ensure that maleness is equivalent to strength, power, and dominance, and that femaleness is equivalent to meekness, weakness, and submission, this only reinforces the very real violence that is perpetrated in this country every minute, every hour, every day. And probably you're sitting there wondering, how on earth did we get here, right? How did we get to a place where that statistic could be so high? How did we get to a place where we could treat one another in this way? Well, I would argue it's perhaps the same principle that drove the slave industry in this country. When you don't see people as full people, you don't treat them as full people, speak to them as full people, see them as full people, or pay them as full people, right? It's a psychological perspective that's reinforced by our culture through images and language and propaganda that tell you, yeah, no, you're right. They deserve to be groped. After all, they were asking for it with those shorts, right? This is not how full people speak of full people, at least it shouldn't be. Um, for those of you who listen to the Liturgist podcast, they, one of the most recent episodes was called Woman, and they had this beautiful group of women um, on the podcast sharing their stories, one of whom was Lisa Gunger, who's the, one of the hosts of the podcast. It's his wife. Um, and she read her story, and it's long, so bear with me, but I would like to read it to you if that's okay. Moment one. I am grown from my mother's own body, my blood from her blood, my heartbeat from her choice, making her belly swell and her hormones go crazy with rage and want for whipped cream-filled donuts at 4 a.m. 
my body grows, and she puts her hand upon her belly to feel a foot kick her side. A jerk of hiccups, the round of my head, she is proud. Proud of her body that is a force, source of life to mine. I grow, her body tells her it is time, and I come into this world with pain and euphoria as she breaks her beautiful body to give me life. She sees me for the first time, what she has made, and it is good. The intricacies of the human body are something staggering. Veins, hearts, lungs, synapses, chemicals, eyelashes, all good and beautiful. She holds my body and breathes in. I grow from a baby to a toddler, toddler to a little girl. I am four. And I can run around with my shirt off and feel the fullness of the wind. I can paint my belly and take baths with friends, slap my butt and laugh. We sleep under stars, run through sprinklers, naked and wild. We are silly and think our bodies are strange and wonderful. I grow and I am six. I'm taught what I can and can't do with my body. I can no longer take my shirt off outside on my own front porch. No longer run naked with my friends with paint on our bellies because the man across the street stares. So my mother takes me inside and tells me I'm now at an age I need to be careful. A feeling comes that I never knew before. I learn later that the word for it is this, shame. We are at our friend's house and the teenage boy keeps making me sit on his lap. I don't understand this. We are all sitting in a circle, about 10 of us, and no one notices. I'm confused. And I try to get away from him, but he holds me there and moves his hands in a way I don't understand. I feel I should obey because he is a stronger, older boy, and I, a small girl, inherently weaker than he. I get mad that my body is not stronger, that I cannot break free. I feel it is my fault. Maybe I should not have worn shorts so my legs are covered. And then there is the church deacon, my friend's father, who insisted that he put lotion on my legs after our bath. I didn't want him to, but he made me obey because he was a man and I, young and born lesser of the sexes. It is uncomfortable, and I thought he must know what he is doing. A respectable man, let alone a church leader, wouldn't do this. But now, now that I am older and know better, yes, yes, he knew. So I am six, and I can no longer be free in this body. I once ran wild in, but I should cover it because there are predators, and I don't tell because I'm ashamed. And it was no big deal, really. No reason to fuss. I am 14. I feel my body changing on me, and I no longer have the freedom of my youth. Blood comes, and I am embarrassed, hiding the grocery store runs, keeping it a secret, seeing my brother laugh when he looks under the sink. It is a wonder growing into womanhood, but I am starting to hate being a woman. I am ashamed at what my body does. This beautiful thing that I once ran free in is turning on me, making me awkward and uncomfortable because even now you are uncomfortable with that thought. Boys' eyes consume rather than see. I am told this is my fault. I am told God wants me to cover my body, wear long skirts and shirts up to my collarbone, and be sure it isn't tight. 
now that I'm 14, now that I'm changing? Is God now ashamed with what God has made? The body formed in my mother so good and beautiful turned to shame with age and religious threads weaving and constructing my social identity? Oppression for something I cannot control, something completely natural and good. If this body is not holy in and of itself, then God should have never made it. I'm 20. I rejected the shy, awkward aspects of womanhood and instead learned to joke about it to cope and be cool. But when night comes, I'm often afraid to walk down the street alone. Every walk I take is accompanied by fear because I see the eyes consume. I hear the threats and am followed. I have friends who are victims. Every girl I know has been afraid, every one of them, from taking a simple walk to rape and a child coming from it. One hid in a laundry basket when she was nine. One silently prayed every night from 13 to 16 that her father would be too drunk to come into her bed. One was at a party with her friend. He wanted something she didn't, so he trapped her in the restroom. One hid from her own brother, another from her grandfather, another from her coworker. And some say it's the woman's fault. The shirt was too low, the breasts too big. How can a man resist? But here's a staggering idea. Maybe it isn't the victim's fault. If in looking at the woman's body you cannot appreciate her beauty but must strip and consume, then it is true our culture has poisoned your mind. Consume, take, be the animal, take, take, take. I'm 30. I made two girls within my own body, felt the pain of bringing them into the world, and when I saw their bodies, I saw a miracle. Their skin and eyelashes perfect, tiny lips, tiny fingernails, eyes and bodies and innocence and awe. They grow and run around my house naked and scream wild without self-awareness or social concern. I teach them about our culture and what is and isn't acceptable, but what I will not teach them is shame of their body. It was beautiful from moment one, and that will not change, not with age, not with anything. One daughter looks at her body, and we talk about the organs and the skin and how her body will change. She's beautiful on every count. I remember when I was six, and I know I have to warn her, not shame her, but warn her about how some people were not taught to love, but take for themselves, and she must be brave and aware. It pains me as I tell her, her innocent mind, not knowing why one person would hurt another in such a way. Don't be afraid, I tell her. But this is our culture, so be smart and be aware, my brave girl. Shame teaches us, but I will not teach my daughters in this way. I will empower them to be proud of their bodies, respectful of their bodies, in awe of how miraculous it is and what it is capable of. I will tell my daughters that to be a woman is not to be lesser, not object, not the bed in the red light district, nor the bitch in the hotel. She is not the body to exploit or the product to consume. She is not shame. She is beautiful woman with beautiful body capable of cosmic realities. 
holding someone close, experiencing love, making love, creating life, accepting another human life as her own, feeling pain, joy, giving strength, healing with a kiss, wholeness with a touch, giving physical and mental nourishment with her own body. The woman's body is made in the image of love, from love herself, life herself, so she herself is of God. For my grandmother, for my mother, my daughters, my friends, and as a reminder to myself, be proud, beautiful woman. Your body is intrinsically good, perfectly good, from moment one. So, so, okay, so we get all that, right? We know the realities of all of this. We know the ugliest ways that this plays out. So why is this? <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you. I meant to bring this entire box up with me. <clears throat> so then why is this an issue for spiritual community? I think that's, what we, that's, the, that's one of the real questions that we have to ask ourselves in this whole series. Why is this something that we talk about here? Right? Besides the obvious fact that it affects literally everyone in this room, male and female alike, <clears throat> it's also important because so much of these issues are centrally located and stem from the language that we use, particularly in the church. It makes sense that our words matter so much because language, right, and images are a primary mode of communication. It is how we talk to one another, literally. So then when crying like a girl is an insult even to a girl, and when manning up is what you do in order to conquer a moment or seize the day, what does that tell us? We pick these idioms up so early in life. I heard a nine-year-old say, man up, <clears throat> the other day. And this all happens when our brains are still forming. And as they are forming, we're learning that to be a girl is to be weak and pitiful. And to be a man is to be strong, victorious, and brave. Do you see how deeply ingrained this all is? It is in the idioms that we use in our language. It is in everything. And so what we've been hearing on the news lately, y'all, that is a byproduct of all of this. That is not the problem. The problem is this entire cultural system that allows those things to be said. Our language is where our true beliefs about the world are made apparent. God the Father. Jesus the Son. And what do Father and Son necessitate? Being a male. They necessitate maleness. Father is a designation for a male parent. A son is a designation for a male child. And so when we attach these words to the central figures of our faith and the most beloved parts of our belief system, do you know what that actually communicates to women in the church? That maleness is the equivalent of divinity and that femaleness is not. It's nothing, really. We are on kind of the other sidelines of religious language, never reflected in the words that we use to talk about God. So when we say things like God, our mother, or when I wear a shirt that says, I met God, she's black. P.S. This is meant to point out two very large blind spots. <clears throat> okay? 
If, if that irks you, if this t-shirt irks you, you may want to think about why, okay? So when we talk about God as mother, or when I say God, when I use she for God, all of which are symbols pointing to something bigger than what that word actually stands for, all of that is inaccurate, right? But when we use that language, we're not trying to be trendy or cute or fun, right? We're not trying to be cutting edge. It's not cutting edge to suggest that the image of God includes feminine and masculine. It's just the truth, okay? So just, whew, all right. So, so the church has a big responsibility to this particular conversation. To all these conversations in this Blind Spot series, we have a responsibility. Because if we truly believe that the image of God is manifest in all people, then that image necessarily includes what it means to be female and feminine. We talk about our incarnational theology, that God is in fact seen and known through flesh and blood, right? Incarnate, in flesh, God in flesh. But folks, our theology is only incarnational when women's bodies are included in that image. We can only understand the fullness of the image of God when women's bodies and the beauty of the feminine are seen as good and equal, not as product or object. Because God's image is not something to be consumed and taken. God's image is something to be celebrated and loved and illuminated. And the people who are not in awe of the image of God, but rather consume and take the image of God, they have forgotten who they are. Remember who you are. And for God's sake, remember who we are. All created in the image of God. Beloved and good, this divine admixture of gentleness, toughness, bravery, and beauty. Males in the room, if you find yourself in the presence of other males who are operating through word or deed in a way that demands or, abuse, or demeans or abuses women, locker room or living room, I don't really care. It is your responsibility to shut it down. Okay, that is your work. That is our work. You can change this. This whole infrastructure was built essentially by males. And so, in fact, you have the power, right, to dismantle these systems that continue to oppress women and minorities. Okay? because we're busting our asses to prove that we're strong enough, capable enough, and we need you to acknowledge it and claim it and speak it boldly. Women, keep standing, keep rising, and keep loving. If the image of God exists in all of us, and if that image of God does in fact include all that it means to be male and all that it means to be female and all that it means to be feminine and all that it means to be masculine, then can we do the work to find the fullness of the image of God in our own souls? Men, can you find the beauty of the feminine to whatever degree it exists within your soul? Can you find that and tap into that to speak lovingly to this problem? Women, can you tap into that, the beauty of the masculine within you to find your own bravery, your own boldness, that's our work. It is not enough in this series. It is not enough to just say, oh, yeah, these blind spots exist. That is not enough. Car manufacturers don't just say, oh, yeah, blind spots exist. That sucks. No. 
They create rear view mirrors with special attachments that allow you to see those blind spots because you have to acknowledge them. Not just see them, not just know that they are there, but do something about them. We have work to do. And the work that we have to do is found in every one of our souls because we all bear the image of God. Can we do that work? Yes, can we say amen to that? Thank you. and have the privilege of seeing a woman preach. Mm. And I am honored. Mm. I'm honored by what you said today, honored to stand in the back and cheer you. I was so loud in the back, I'm sorry. <laughs> I could not sit down. A sight back there. Let us hold this mm. tension, right? Some of this is uncomfortable today and a lot of these weeks and next week is going to be uncomfortable for a lot of us in our whiteness, okay? Let's own that. Mm. Let's own that and recognize that, and then we do something with it. You are a beautiful community that recognizes these things and then chooses to do something about it. May we continue in that spirit, yes? Yes, okay, do me a favor, hold hands. Let's just go fully yes. uncomfortable right now. <laughs> I'm gonna pray, I want us to um, pray this blessing over us, and then we're gonna all head to the food court if we want, okay? Cheap food, bad food, it's fine, let's be together, okay? <laughs> Let's celebrate together. Listen, sisters and brothers, okay? Sisters and brothers. Remember, mm -hmm. God is at the very least all things good, true, and beautiful. And yet, we sense God is also so much more. Our worship has ended, but now our service begins. I love that. Our worship has ended, but now our service, our change begins. Go forth from this place. You are beloved, and the whole world awaits and needs you. So live passionately, love faithfully, and celebrate every moment till we meet again. And let's give a strong, hearty amen. 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 God bless you guys. Come over to the food court with us. Give it up one more time for Anna. Anna.